Welcome to the Pursuit of Wellbeing podcast. My name's Maria Brosnan. I'm the founder of Pursuit and your host for the show. This podcast is dedicated to providing well-being information, inspiration, and support for teachers, leaders, and school staff around the world. My guest today is Ross McGill, a man that probably needs no introduction, but I will give an introduction. (laughs) Ross is the founder of Teacher Toolkit, the company he started in 2008 with a simple Twitter account. Ross is an experienced senior teacher with a career history spanning 25 plus years working in state schools across London. He's also an award-winning teacher, author, and blogger. He's frequently asked to speak at national conferences across the world and is asked to reflect on educational developments around educational policy. In 2015, Ross was nominated as one of the 500 most influential people in Britain for his influence on education, with his blog and resources having reached over 11 million people. That is a phenomenal achievement. Can I just say, Ross, that is a phenomenal achievement. Oh, thank you. My family won't speak highly of me <laughs> <laughs> compared to all these things written down. <laughs> well, I haven't even finished. He's the author of seven books, including Just Great Teaching, Mark, Plan, Teach, 60 Second CPD, and more, which you can find on his website. And I, know, <laughs> I know, I know. And one last thing, he's currently training teachers and studying for his doctorate at Cambridge University. Ross, welcome to yeah, the podcast. That last one, it reminds me I need to get there on my research. <laughs> I'm running out of time. I've literally got five <laughs> months to, to upgrade. <laughs> crack on, crack on. Yeah, I'll be fine. I'll be yeah, fine. Cool. I like well, that pressure. Great to meet you and thank you so much for joining us today. That's my pleasure. Hello, everyone. It's, I, I think, you know, it's a great day as we're recording this in October. And after all everybody's been through this year, I'd like to start with, could you share some of your tips for having a happier work life? Um, well, you know, so I've been through the whole bell curve with workload as a teacher uh, and the blog, you know, became a full-time job in its own right, which I tried to manage for easily five years on top of working 50 to 80 hours a week as a school leader. Um, All my own doing stroke passion, I suppose. But um, I guess when I started to recognise that I was burning out and it was starting to impact on family as well as my performance in the classroom, as well as my performance, I was going to say performance at home, but um, being a good dad and, you know, a husband and things like that. Um, I, I, you know, recently I bought, uh, I, we got a border collie puppy, and it's been the best thing that we've done for me, especially. It's the only way that it gets me to switch off um, two walks a day. And uh, lockdown, I did the kind of purchase on a bicycle. My boy got his um, bike upgrade, I suppose, off stabilizers in May of lockdown. So um, it was a good excuse to get myself a bike. And then suddenly I could take the dog for longer and faster walks. And Border Collies, as you know, got notoriously high energy. Um, So it was good to to kind of double up on my fitness as well as tire the dog out. Um, So that's been the best thing for my own managing my stress recently. You know, and I'm 46 now, probably in my early 30s, I wouldn't have been interested in doing stuff like that. Um, You know, your priorities and your people around you are different. Um, So, uh, you know, earlier on in my career, probably, you know, gym or out partying at the weekend with friends, totally trying to separate myself from teaching altogether. Um, 
But I, I think all in all, the, the advice I always give to teachers specifically is eight hours sleep a night, a large bottle of water on your de- classroom desk, and you're five a day. And it sounds silly, but it is critical. Absolutely, absolutely critical. And I like the the doability of that. You know, it's yeah, it's easy, and it's you know we we hear it all the time with you know five a day that type of stuff. Um, and it, you know sometimes you know thousands of days in my teaching career I wouldn't eat lunch I'd, I'd go to work on an empty uh, stomach and I'd come home on an empty stomach uh, so it's any surprise that you get kind of get through but you know that's the nature of teaching very very similar to the the medicine industry I suspect as well um people working long shifts yeah yeah funnily enough I was just on looking at Twitter before we started recording this and there was uh, there was a tweet about that uh, very much about lunch who has lunch as if there's there's no expectation of having lunch and as a well-being i'm a well-being consultant well-being is my my thing for 30 years i've focused yes. on thing and and it's just so critical but we've squeezed it out of teaching what's what's the answer there how do we find time and space to well, take care of ourselves I think, you know, and I'm far from innocent, um, but I would probably, you know, you go back to teaching research on wellbeing, you'd struggle to find any academic sources maybe eight or nine years ago, but now it's in abundance. And, you know, I suspect in the next decade, we'll we'll really start to see uh, research saying that happier teachers, schools with great wellbeing policies are producing better outcomes. But, you know, the jury's still out for many people, but... The real point I want to make is we have people within our own profession treating others as unprofessionals. So I'll give you one example um, that I heard recently. A teacher at home who's tested positive for COVID being asked to set cover lessons, um, which in the teaching sector, that's pretty standard setting cover lessons at home for most people, which saying it out loud is just bizarre. Uh, Using your own phone. (laughs) <laughs> to contact parents and children to check in while you're also sick at home with COVID. Um, and that's a request from a school leader. Um, so, you know, several questions. One, it, it's it's highly inappropriate. But two, why work in that school? And two, why do school leaders do that to teachers and then wor- worry that we have a recruitment crisis? Um, uh, and then there's no perfect solution. But, you know, some of these simple human uh, attributes are being um, lost and squeezed and whatever the word but just you know we're doing very um, inappropriate things to each other so you know teachers want to be trusted and respected but yet we do these things to each other so it's any wonder that parents and politicians don't give us the respect that we desire because we don't respect each other mm. big big subject there so how do, where does that start then does that start with respecting ourselves and our boundaries well, well you think of like you think of all aspects of school life the government underfunds schools full stop you know early today there's an announcement coming out that they're now cancelling all the kind of budgets for training and whatever else and recruitment despite seven years of missed tra- uh, recruitment targets and a decade of underfunding um but we all know through covid unemployment figures out today and um, 1.2 1.4 million uh, people um, and 9 million people still on furlough. There's been a huge shift of people going towards T-shirt applications. 
So, you know, if I work with Office for National Statistics alongside the government, I say, look, we've got loads of people coming over to teaching. We don't, we're not going to have this recruitment crisis. Let's get rid of this funding here. Um, we cannot have a world-class education system on a, on a shoestring budget. It's simple as that. And we all know that research always says the quality of teaching matters. But if, you, if you're just getting people to get their QTS status and then stick them in the classroom, whether it's through a fast-track route or a bit more deep and meaningful, um, without the kind of support around them, especially in the first couple of years, as we know with teacher attrition, mm. um, we're just repeating the same old, same old. Um, so, you know, the vast majority of these politicians do not have a Scooby-Doo. And what's the answer there is... Well, the, the answer the, well, is it's highly complex. You know, I guess that's why I started blogging, because I wanted to share the reality. So now, you know, 12 years later since I've been blogging, you've got all sorts of people doing it in any industry, whether it's on the front line of NHS or undercover as a police officer. And it just raises awareness and, and people become, people grow a kind of popular followership, I guess, through um, being known, uh, being liked for the content and <clears throat> providing some reliable data that challenges orthodoxy, I suppose. And I think that's what I've done. Uh, and you can't, you know, Marmite with social media, not everyone can like or will like you, not everyone likes what you have to say. Um, but if you can find your own allegiance, whether it's, with Toby Young and his Free Speech Union, or whether it's um, with Teacher Toolkit and uh, on the voice of teachers um, to have a better kind of working conditions, um, then you'll, if, you know, going into kind of my blogging theory, I suppose, um, when, you, when your content's regular and consistent and it's uh, practical for the people that you intend it for, um, then it will naturally grow um, in popularity and um, that snowballs and that's what's happened to me. Mm-hmm. I, I read something that you wrote recently that leading a school through COVID is like riding a ghost train. You know it's going to happen, you just don't know when. Yeah, now that's not mine. I like that analogy from a colleague that I connect with on um, LinkedIn and I asked for her permission just to share that and it's the best analogy I've heard and you know it's rabbit in headlights for many of us but that was the night I've heard a few analogies but that's been my favorite one that stuck that you know you're going to get someone jumping out on you and uh, we've all been there when we're sitting with small children or some mates on a ghost train <laughs> and, uh, you know the jump's going to happen but when it, it happens when you least expect it and it's pretty much like COVID I think uh, you know one million kids I think out of school at the moment in England, uh, and we're not in the, even in the depths of winter yet. Yeah, yeah. And what? Let's talk about COVID then. What's it like? What? What? What are the threats now to teachers, to pupils, and young people? What? What do you foresee in your? You know, in the well, you know, some rhetorical questions. Um, yeah. If you take pupils out of a school and move them somewhere else, what makes the school? Is it the building or the or the community? And you know, what will schools look like in fifty years? Will it be a building? Or you know, if I was proficient at football and I was travelling the world with Arsenal or West Ham, um, I'm logging into tutoring lessons and virtual lessons. And and you know. If you think of your kind of Moodle and Blackboard pro systems with university, uh, we've been teaching online for nearly uh, over 20 years now. Mm-hmm. Schools with um, 
lack of funding and not necessarily teaching online or no no, no huge desire to have obviously been caught unaware through no fault of their own. But um, this whole notion of uh, virtual schools and teaching online, um, obviously now everyone's doing it and we're all up to speed and we've still got a few little things to, to go and now it's an expectation of government and Ofsted, I suppose, that you will provide this. But the reality for teachers is I've got 30 kids in front of me, two of them are at home self-isolating, I've got to try and teach them online and set work and interact with them at the same time I'm with my class five hours a day. So that's the real threat at the moment. My insights, um, teacher uh, marking uh, is the greatest burden all teachers face, that workload issue. Um, right now it's shifted to planning or, or adapting resources to online in particular or that recovery curriculum. Um, so those are the kind of immediate threats. I think the long-term threat is we've got a perfect opportunity to overhaul assessment in particular and we're just going to go and do what we've always done. Kids are going to sit exams in a hall, and then they're going to be ranked and filed from top to bottom, and we're going to just keep um, perpetuating this myth that exams are the best indicator of performance, and um, our disadvantaged or people premium kids have to really work hard, harder than most, to try and even get an opportunity to get into college or university or, or whatever it is. So that's been that's currently i see the the kind of biggest threat stroke regrets to the education system as we know it and in terms of this this ideal opportunity to um you know reform the system where do you think we're missing a trick there and i know that we're straying a little bit from well-being but i think all of these things impact well-being so directly and so powerfully um it's worth the discussion, I think. It, what what trick are we missing and how could we not miss it? You know, how do we... Well, I think as ever, um, I, um, people will say this in any workforce, it's when the government have a, a disconnect from people on the ground. Um, so all the kind of things that I read and are part of or was part of when I was a teacher is when teachers are around the table informing policy, um, the kind of, I guess, the announcements or recommendations are a bit more respected if the general population of that particular industry are aware that there are people representing them, not just union representation. Um, so I think that's the trick. But, you know, we're all working under new circumstances, having to respond very quickly. And, you know, the, who'd want to be the prime minister? I mean, you're going to get it in the ear from all angles, regardless of what you do. But um you know, when you think of other departments such as Gavin Williamson and whoever else doing their bits, I'm, I'm sure they've got the same pressures. Um, and you, 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 whatever political ideology you have, you're always going to get it in the ear for whatever you do. But um, I think my my preference, particularly with education and teacher well-being and pupil, disadvantaged pupils, is we need to get to a place where education policy is, is a kind of cross-party political interest stroke protection and that we have some common goals but I was asked this question which is fantastic um do you believe in some people succeeding or just some and there will be some people that will just believe just some so if you think of grammar schools and whatever else uh, there you go and then we think of parents that might be on high salaries and send their kids off to certain schools they don't necessarily want Ross from people premium background who carries a knife in his pocket and, you know, difficult circumstances at home. 
So this this illusion of parental choice, I, I believe all schools are good, um, you know, regardless of Ofsted um, gradings. Um, the bottom line for parents, I guess, is safety and happiness and then getting an education that will lead towards a career that the, the children choose. But there's so many forces, um, you know, opportunities into college, uh, industries, perceptions of skills and all those types of things. Um, I don't know what the answers are. Um, and I, I certainly through COVID, it's going to make it even more difficult. I think, you know, I was reading the research by Education Endowment Foundation, that are disadvantaged kids. Um, I've had, I've seen, you know, a decade behind, but I've actually heard, read something somewhere, I'd have to dig out the source, but I think 500 years I've I read somewhere for disadvantaged kids to catch back up on the work that we've done over the last 10 years. Um, I'd have to check that source. And let, uh, Can you say that again? I think 500 years seems far-fetched, but I'm absolutely certain I've read or heard that somewhere that that's how long it would take the work that's been done over the last 10 years to, to get to level the playing field with disadvantaged kids has been undone and it would take that length of time to get back to where we were. But um, I'll say it with caution. I'd love to check the source. Um, but, you know, regardless of the time frame, we all know that our disadvantaged pupils um, are going to be pushed really f- you know further behind. But, you know, things like the National Tutoring Programme starting and other things that are going to help... Um, you know, I am optimistic in some aspects, but, you know, that announcement just that I read before we came online about the training budgets being taken away um, because we've now got loads of people that want to be a teacher. Um, you know, we can't achieve this world-class education system that I think we all want, not just if you're uh, on Gavin Williamson's team. Mm, mm. Talk to me about what your insights are from social media, Ross. What do you... Oh, where to start? Um, yeah. So it all, you know, all in current times, just in what's a kind of a snapshot of what oh, so, so my 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 Twitter channel is the easiest place to go to. Nor in a normal month, I get ten million impressions. So that's people. How many people will see my tweet on their device? Right now, that's dramatically reduced to about two or three. And for me, you know, predominantly the vast majority of people are teachers that follow me. Seventy-five um, percent are UK audience. So if it's dramatically reduced, I'm always thinking, am I tweet, am I sharing the wrong things, you know, not relevant, that type of stuff. And I understand I'm not in the classroom and I'm not necessarily sharing things that teachers may be talking about currently, but the resources I share, I do think will make a difference. But having done this for a long time now, it suggests to me that, um, you know, the working habits of teachers, which is, you know, pretty much shaping and influencing my own academic research is that you come home, seven o'clock at night, kids to bed, have a bit of tea on the sofa, watch, go back to bed with all the COVID stress. Um, people don't have time for social media at the moment because they're just, anxiety is much higher, so that well-being aspect of school life is a bit more um, stressful. Uh, the example I gave you earlier, I might have COVID, I might be self-isolated, or I might be in school teaching socially distance with 20 kids in the classroom but 10 at home, and I'm having to do a double-up act of delivery online in the classroom and at home, as well as physically in the school, for five or six hours a day. And then, um, you know, the kind of surveys that I've been conducting, planning and meetings have now become the biggest workload issue. And it's you know, it's just how our profession is responding to the pandemic. I understand it. 
And it's never an easy feat for any school leader to reduce that burden on teachers. But, you know, it always goes back to if you give, you know, the education know pound here or there, then if that went to schools, you can reduce teacher contact time so they have a bit more time in the day to do their marketing and planning at, rather than doing it at home on a Sunday. And it goes back to something I said earlier in the podcast, we treat each other like this. If I keep asking you to reply to an email after school hours or do your marking or call these parents at home on your mobile phone bill that you pay for, we're just perpetuating the, the expectation that this is what we'll do. Whereas if we all said no um, and we did it in school hours, we'd, we'd suddenly shift the influences of the profession versus funding and the terms and conditions of the job. You know, when I first qualified to be a teacher, on blackboards without computers, um, the kind of workload dialogue didn't include emails, whereas today we, we all know that we are spending night and day in front of a device, and if we're all travelling work during normal circumstances, swiping left to delete all the emails to try and keep up and reply before we even get to our office. So there's lots of research on email culture now that, uh, you know, out-of-office responses, um, a great source in Germany that uh, if you email me over the teacher holidays and um, your email is automatically deleted and it notifies you and it asks you to send it again when I'm back in the office and I love that and it's little things like that that can help uh, improve our own understanding of each other's well-being as well as our own and, and our expectations of working and how we want others to also work but um, there's a great TED talk by Nigel Marsh about well-being and it's a good 10 plus years old but when I watched that it really was a eureka moment for me that and he said um if you do not define your own def- version of work-life life balance someone else will define it for you and you might not like their definition mm-hmm. um and it, uh, it really resonated with me so from that point I deleted the apps on my phone that connected me to work um, I've came up with other little simple ideas for me to at least have a reference point if I needed to do anything. But I really started to take control of, you know, particularly the notifications because I had, you know, the the school leadership life stuff going on as well as four or five thousand tweets a month, and that's just Twitter. Never mind my website, um, you know, the the cart checkout stuff and uh, all the other platforms as well. So um, I had to take back control. And what would you say to somebody listening to this who is a teacher, maybe a middle leader, maybe a senior leader, who is saying, yeah, that's easy for you to say, for me to put these boundaries in place. How do I actually do that? What, would, what advice would you give to somebody to say, I need to take more control of my... Well, you know, uh, my best friend's father, who passed away uh, about 10 or 15 years ago, as, as, the best piece of advice he said to me was, people do what they want to do. And that's it. If people want to work 80 hours, they will. Uh, But at some point, each of us will have, uh, I I use the word crisis loosely, a mental health crisis. God forbid that we do, but if it does come to you in some shape or form, it's either going to impact on you personally or the people around you. And, you know, we all have different forces in our life, you know, whether it's happiness with your home circumstances or not, or kind of things lurking behind the scenes. Um, but people do what they want to do. So if people want to work, you know, if I run home at 3.30 to go and pick up my son on the school run, I shouldn't give that perception or be given the perception that I'm lazy and I'm running home. 
because I might run home, do the, do the school bit, put him to bed, and then at seven or eight o'clock, I'm catching up with my emails and I want to work then when it suits me and my workload rather than suit someone else. Is of deadlines just in any industry, not just teaching, you know. But the challenge with teaching is it's always imminent, particularly with cover lessons at the moment during COVID. Um, that increases um, anxiety and stress and all sorts of things compared to, you know, like you and I sitting at home now without 30 kids around us, and you don't have five hours of lessons tomorrow with 30 kids in front of you. It's a, it's a huge um, stress and you know, that Sunday night feeling, a lot of teachers will know what that feels like. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you're a former teacher like myself, um, to remove that, it's a huge um, burden lifted. Um, and I'd only say now, this is my fourth year out of the classroom full time. Um, I, I find Sunday nights are a very happy place, whereas for 25 years... <laughs> You know, I wouldn't say all of them, but the vast majority were not very comfortable circumstances. And I'm, I'm talking like, you know, meeting your friends for dinner, um, you know, popping to the cinema on a Sunday night. I would never, ever have done anything like that probably in the last 10 or 15 years of my career because of the, the you know, I'm a design and technology teacher. So if you go out and have a, a, a glass of wine or something, um, it you know, it, I'm not saying you get the shakes, but, you know, it, you've got to be, if you're using machinery and you've got 30 kids in front, you've got to be on top of your game. So just that. And it's, but then if you're going out and you're having that meal with your friends to try and improve your well-being, you have a late night during the working week, 11 o'clock, and you're up, out, you're out, you're out of the house at half six and at your school desk by half seven, um, to be one step ahead of the kids and you've got 30 emotions in front of you, it's high pressure. And, uh, it's not like being a pilot or a doctor. I appreciate it, but it's a it's a difficult profession, and it's very easy for teachers to burn out. I do think. How on earth did I manage twenty five years? Yeah, I know it's it's common, and I see it. I'm in schools, well, online or in schools, um, a lot, and and I see it, and it's it's heartbreaking because then we're losing so many talented people. We need to be looking at this in in different ways, and as you say, it's it's not an easy situation to to resolve. It's complex. I, mm. I fully appreciate that. Oh, where to go, Ross? Where should we go from here? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, what's life like for you as a blogger? Um, it's good fun. I mean, I, I'm just looking to the side of me now. I mean, I've naturally through no fault of my own and, and no desire, I'm, I'm in the, pretty much the world of kind of education, PR and marketing. And although I enjoy it, I don't want it ever to be all, the only thing I do. My, my passion's in the classroom with teachers and kids. And before lockdown, I was doing that in schools all around the world. So I can't wait to get back out, really. Mm. Um, but the, the, the push-pull challenge for me was doing my own stuff, sharing resources and ideas and opinions on my blog, uh, writing my books and my research when, when I can get down to it. But, you know, I, I get a lot of um, product placements, I suppose, as the official title, I guess, that kind of influencer type. And I've been doing it for seven or eight years, and it started through companies offering me some freebies to trial in return to tweet or blog about it. And, and now it's, you know, probably five years ago, it started to be great things for the school, you know, where it's be saving the school 20 30,000 pound in 
various products and site licenses just for me to share the resource or blog a journey of how we used it. But the issue was it, it blurred the lines of my work and my blogging life and the school would benefit, but I would be doing the work after school hours. So sometimes it would suit the school and then I, I could kind of half do a tweet or a blog at my office desk after the school hours or, or, or more often than not, it was at home till midnight or on a Saturday or Sunday. It just became too much. But you know, working with UNICEF, Microsoft, the Department for Education, not yet Ofsted, but that day will come, I'm sure. Um, the Red Cross and anything and everyone, the Education Endowment Foundation and just thousands of different software companies. Um, it makes my lens wider, just like uh, the blogging data does. It tells me what teachers are reading, as well as me being in school. So I kind of, you know, got that macro lens of the teaching community and in also different countries in the world. So, you know, professionally, I've been to about 15 countries in the last two years. So my insights, which is what I tried to put in my book, Just Great Teaching, was to trying to un uh, unpick the challenges all schools face, but how they deal with them in their own context, you know, whether it's a country or a part of the UK or a particular building or, or particular school structure, whether it's grammar, independent or what have you. Um, so, yeah, my blogging um, life, uh, I, when people ask that question, why not a head teacher, you know, and I've done various acting, very temporary uh, kind of acting headship roles in my you know, cover for the day or half, a week or term, nothing significant. But I've been a virtual head teacher when I look at my blogging life and trying to analyse it, all the things that I've seen and the people that I'm dealing with, whether it's parents, students, uh, Ofsted inspections, or just a teacher wanting a resource on my site. Uh, I've been managing my website as a virtual head teacher without really realising that's what I've been doing. So that data I've been collecting on a daily basis has been um, very fascinating. So the blogging... Um, I got to probably a tipping point in 2014 where I used to love coming home from work and the blog was just a hobby and it was an escape and I think my boy was probably what was he three years old so it was just something to do because you you know you, you don't necessarily get out and see all your mates as much as you used to so it was just something to do at home um, on the sofa on the laptop and you know through no fault of my own or maybe it's my fault it's become a full-time job. Um, so now um, probably about 40,000 teachers have a login inside the site and they're doing all sorts of interesting things behind the scenes. Um, and, you know, that's led me to kind of data protection, privacy policies, legal expenses, copyright issues, the whole spectrum, which I never thought a blog would take me into. So I now have to be quite careful you because know, I, you know, it started as a Twitter blog, free blog, just like anyone else. But now it's developed into a company, a business, and um, it pays my salary. It, it funds one or two kind of entrepreneurial and charitable endeavors. Um, and when there's a little bit extra cash in the bank, I can kind of go off to the far reaches of the UK and, and work in some disadvantaged areas that can't necessarily pay your usual CPD, never mind whether it, whether I'm cheaper or expensive, uh, just to get out and do um, some work that's of, of value, I suppose. But, um, you know, I need to put food on the table and the blog has given me another conduit to do that. And, uh, you know, uh, probably about 2007, in fact, early, maybe 2014, 
my blog was turning over uh, an advertising income that was equivalent to my teacher salary, uh, uh, sorry, school leader salary. So it's a huge sum of cash. So, you know, a long story short, when I lost my job to teaching and took redundancy and then had to sell my house to clear my debts, my blog gave me an opportunity to reinvent myself. And then soon it started to make an income and then the books and things. And I thought, well, that's a good way to pay my debt. So it became part of survival more than anything. If we strip everything away, it was to survive and feed my family. And then when I got back into school, it started to... Um, pay the bills and then maybe pay a holiday. And, and then after five years of not having a holiday, when my son was born premature, um, we got our first holiday off to Portugal. My, my book royalties paid our flight. So that was a real win. And then last six, seven years, it started to become a place where I can employ uh, five or six other people um, and just try and share my wisdom and support teachers and challenge policy where I think best fits. Um, so that yeah, it's kind of snapshot of where where I am day to day. You know, right. Obviously now I'm home full time, um, but I would probably say seventy five percent in schools and probably twenty five percent at home. But I'm trying to get a balance before lockdown to do both. Um, so I think going forward post pandemic, whenever that happens for us all, um, I'd like to sustain that fifty fifty split because I do enjoy the website, um, but it's nice to get out and see people and, and see the reality. <laughs> Definitely, definitely. Prior to this, I was, I was looking around your website and I noticed a blog about your childhood experiences. Do you want to share a little bit about that and to explain to our listeners what happened? Um, yeah, sure. So, you know, I, I, I'm a sexual abuse survivor childhood, um, male sexual abuse. Um, didn't tell anyone for, you know, I, yeah, didn't tell anyone for 32 years. I mean, I told, you know, close relationships you know but probably less than one handful um but speaking out first started with my with the police and then with my mother um and then kind of immediate family and then go into a place where so if people read the blog they'll see that it kind of starts off with a safeguarding perspective as a teacher and how organizing a safeguarding event at my own school as a school leader sitting on a table uh, talking about it, uh, or, or not me specifically, but the trainer at the front of the room talking about that, you know, some people in this room may have experienced it. And then to hear a colleague next to me um, say, yeah, right, under his breath. And for me there to not challenge it as a school leader, number one, but two, as a sexual abuse survivor, made me think, right, I need to sort this out. And that was in 2011. So we're looking at uh, six years later before I even got to a place. So it's been a big journey for me, 32 years. Um, you know, seeing comments from Boris Johnson about sexual abuse historical cases and shouldn't waste police funding on that, all these types of things. Um, all of the kind of Chelsea, Stoke City um, football cases and the more people speaking out, particularly social media, um, have been a real help uh, to kind of bring that energy up to the surface, I suppose. But I guess the best thing for me was a non-verbal signal at the doctors, really. I think I was just going for a general kind of cold or tonsillitis checkup. And in the, in the men's uh, toilets, there was a poster, uh, Male Sexual Survivors. Um, Survivors UK is the charity, a London-based organisation, and they just had a green badge. And um, I think I parked that for probably, this must have been maybe even 10 years ago, so I must have parked it into my psyche 
then saw it again. And then as, as more things brewed along, I contacted them and then they sent me a huge bag of green badges. And then one of my own ways of starting to learn to talk about it was um, wearing the green badge on my suit. So you might find one or two pictures on my website or social media with a green badge on my lapel. And I wore it because I knew one day someone would ask me. And the funny thing is, although it didn't happen on the high street, um, it was one of our best friends that came around to our house at the time and just fleetingly said, what's that? And there I was in front of my wife for the first time having to tell somebody. Um, and I did it. And then I, I, I just, literally I was like 30 seconds away from running out the door anyway. But I did it you know, comfortably, calmly, jumped out the door, walked out the tube and thought, that that was a big step. So that was um, part part of all the healing process, I suppose. But what I wasn't prepared for was the the flurry, and I'm talking thousands of messages, publicly and privately, of other people disclosing. So you know, apart from me, you know, having sympathy and signposts and various websites, some of the it's all relative, I suppose, experiences, but abuse is abuse. Um, but some of the stories are just shocking. And, you know, I had mums leaving me voicemails on the phone saying, my son's just read your blog and we've discovered it's my husband. Uh, or uh, another chap has kept it quiet for 60 years. So, you know, I think just by speaking out, it's going to help others. And I know that when I wrote it, it did have a huge impact. I don't necessarily tweet it and share it often. Um, but I have it quite proudly on my personal Twitter as a, just a kind of signpost so people know that it's part of my identity. And, you know, I live with it from the age of 13. So that's all through school, uh, unnoticed, um, all through university with all my friendships growing and university trials and tribulations, all through my professional career as a teacher. Um, and I think also being out of school, I, I, I know recently before I left full-time teaching I started to slowly talk about it subtly in some conversations with individuals but then going public on my site knowing the platform I had I thought it would be a missed opportunity and plus good therapy for me I, I never really pursued counseling which I don't necessarily regret I just think I've learned to deal with it to a place where I'm now managing um, and you know I did all the right things you know police and what have you um, tried to hold the person to account um so yeah i think that's probably a whistle stop tour of how why what and who and stuff like that mm -hmm. thank you for sharing that ross and i what, what would you hope that people listening to this would do either on their own behalf if they've experienced something like this or in in a safeguarding issue if they're if they're suspected well, i think one is there's always going to be someone else sadly who's probably experienced the same thing as you. So there will be someone that's ready to listen or can share their own story or experience of how they uh, learned to deal with it, whether it's privately or then went public. Um, you know, I, I don't, I guess being able to talk about it is to help, you know, just like I'm doing now, it's good therapy for me. Um, but otherwise it just would have been a conversation that I never spoke about ever. Um, so that'd be my advice. There'll be someone out there that can help. There'll be definitely a charity. Um, I think it raises awareness. Um, ultimately, what we're trying to do is, you know, educate the next generation so that these things stop happening. But, you know, recently there's just something in the press about the Church of England. You know, these things are horrific. 
Um, there's no place for any forms of abuse in our society, particularly in you know a leading country such as ours. But it just makes your heart sad, sick, uh, sad that you know whether you're an adult or a child, it's just um, not a very nice thing to do to another human being. So um, I'm, I hope that people listening maybe get some reassurance. That's what we're oh. already. I'm so scared. <laughs> I've been demanded to go and play football uh, <laughs> with my son there, uh, but yeah, that, that, that's why I, you know Freddie's my inspiration as well. You know, I want to make the world a better place, so I can only use my own resources, which are my own stories. <laughs> Here he is again. Yeah, do you know I want to play football? Because you're always on the computer. And I never <laughs> he thinks I just sit here and don't do any work. Anyway. Um, yeah, I, I hope it kind of signposts people to speak out or to support other people that do and not and, and actually genuinely listen to them. That it's not, you know, often the the critique is why did it take 32 years? Well, because it did. It's taken me that long to process it. And, you know, we all have different cultural capital. Some of us have got good schema where we can use different resources and know how to talk to other people, whether through learning needs or whatever. Um, take a longer time to process it. So I think we should respect people regardless of how long it takes them. Um, Absolutely, and it's and it's the most private thing and there's no expectation for anybody to publicly declare something that's happened to them privately. It would be my, my wish that they would get support. Yeah, I guess my one regret is, you know, 32 years ago, it was very hard to track any evidence. So, you know, if it's a, if people are listening where something has happened recently, and I know a lot of people might have various risks associated, you know, threats to life and stuff like that. So that's obviously a different context. But the sooner you uh, speak out, report and share evidence with the people that need to know, um, the, the better for you bringing these people to justice would be my top tip. Thank you. Is there anything else you'd like to mention before we wrap up? Um, you know, I just want to say really that, you know, teachers are doing incredible work right now. And, you know, earlier in the pandemic where we saw a lot of politicians and, me and media berate teachers for sitting at home on full pay and not offering, you know, that remote learning. Um, the reality versus the perception is always very different. You know, teachers are working flat out. In any, in any industry, you'll get a one bag of egg here or there or a bad example, you know. But on the whole, teachers are, uh, through kind of their characteristics, are incredibly generous and hardworking people. And sometimes, whether it's school leader, I say that cautiously, but or whether it's government, um, tr try to take advantage of that and... You know, I think we should, you know, particularly now, so we're in October and schools are open, kids are in school, thank goodness, mental health, uh, and all this exam debate up for grabs. You know, the anxiety on teachers still today and the kind of little notice of, you know, lockdown aside, but a little notice about exams or how things are shaping out, it just doesn't necessarily give them the respect that they deserve as a qualified profession and, uh, uh, you know, if we look at all OECD countries across the world, you know, teachers in England work the highest number of hours and are paid one of the lowest salaries. And we need to change that. And this political rhetoric about world-class education, it's just nonsense. So to teachers listening, um, you're doing amazing work. Um, I think blogs like myself and anyone else, anyone else that can share their stories 
and uh, get the get reality out to change perceptions only a good thing I think so um yeah huge respect to our teachers working there yeah for sure here here thank you Ross I've been speaking with Ross McGill you can connect with Ross on Twitter at Teacher Toolkit and his website is teachertoolkit.co.uk where you can find out more about his membership site, his five-minute lesson plans or five-minute planning, uh, books, blogs, podcasts and much more. Ross, thank you so much for all you do in education. Genuinely, you're a force for good and it's been um, a privilege speaking with you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks so much for listening. Now check out our website, PursuitWellbeing.com and take our free teacher anxiety quiz. I'll include the link in the description below. The quiz only takes a couple of minutes and you'll get a better understanding of where you are today plus tips to immediately feel better. If you enjoyed the podcast, please hit the subscribe button in your podcast app and if you feel inspired, please rate and review it and share it with your friends. I love getting your feedback and learning how we can improve our program.